0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Murder and Merlot.
1: We are a true crime book club podcast. I'm your host, Tara. And I'm your host, Michelle. How's it going, Michelle? It's going all right over here. Surviving, yeah. not thriving. Definitely surviving, not thriving.
0: Yeah, that's a story of my life right now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I feel that. I feel yeah. it in my soul.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, I can at least see now because there for a while I was uh, roaming around blind because I injured my eyeballs. Yeah, but it was rough. It was not cool. Not cool. I was literally blind for a couple of days, but now I'm feeling better. I got medication. It's all great. My dog, however, is <laughs> also giving me help. Hank. Oh my oh, God, Hank, my dog, you guys, stressing me out. So he had a mast cell tumor. And it was removed. And so hopefully it'll all be fine. But, you know, it makes me worried because I'm a worried dog mom. And we know too much. So we know too much. Know. And any employee at a vet clinic, they have the worst luck with animals. Oh, so. <laughs> so yeah, not only did he have a mast cell tumor, but I was gone for a couple of days. And uh, he was able to make a hole in his soft cone and rip the stitches open wide open. Yeah. And got a great, great infection in there. So we've been dealing with that, cleaning it every day, antibiotics, the whole thing. So we're getting through it. It's just a lot more maintenance than it should have been.
1: (laughs) No, it should have been like, this is off 10 days. Those stitches will come out. Cone can come off all good in the hood. Right. Not so much. No, Now He's still moping around with his stupid
0: cone. Not a soft cone anymore. He doesn't get that privilege with a nope. stupid hard cone. And he's so sad about it. And it's like, well, buddy, whose fault is that? You made your bed. You can sleep in it. Exactly. So anyways, those are the stressors in my life right now. Yes. <laughs> not, not that anybody asked.
1: <laughs> no, but, you know, just got to
0: let the people know.
1: And, you know, Hank deserves a little bit of everybody's love. Yes. Everybody can send
0: love to Hank. He's got his own Instagram. Probably have mentioned that before, but uh, I'm posting about his journey on there now. If you want to go follow, (laughs) I love it. (laughs) It's a a journey. So you can go follow the Derpy GSP. I'm pretty sure that's what it is. I don't know. Anyways, (laughs) (laughs) we're here to talk about murder.
1: (laughs) Yes. And I feel like we should give another shout out to our giveaway winner.
0: Yes, Shannon was our giveaway winner, and she got her basket this weekend. She was super excited about it. That's awesome. And apparently she is just the luckiest girl in the world right now because she also got engaged this weekend. Shut up. She did. So it was like, ah, happy engagement. Here's a bunch of murdery things. I I I don't have anything else.
1: (laughs) There's wine in there. There was wine. That's all that mattered. So, how, I mean, how often do you get an engagement gift from your favorite podcast co hosts? Right. Mm -hmm. She was pretty psyched. I know it. Yeah. (laughs) That's That's awesome.
0: Super, super exciting. I'm so happy for her.
1: That's awesome. Yeah.
0: And uh, we released our first ever episode of the morning news last week, which was so much fun. Oh my God. I I love it. Just loved it. (laughs) It just, oh, it brings me a lot of joy just to hear us yeah.
1: ranting and just so into it. I just ugh, love it so much. And the r- ridiculousness of the bizarre case. And yeah, I just, and you finally get to see the pictures that I posted oh my on God, that that
0: pictures. <laughs> uh, they're great. Was it exactly yeah. what you pictured in your head? It was better. It better. was better. Yeah, that's great. If you haven't seen those pictures, everybody's got to go look at our Instagram or Facebook about the weirdos that we talked about.
1: (laughs) Yes. And like machete face guy. Not even a good machete tattoo. It wasn't even a good machete tattoo. You're not even good at that. (laughs) (laughs) So Um, funny. Loved it. Everybody loved it as well.
0: I hope so too. And anybody that sees any weird news articles or anything crazy happening in the true crime world,
1: please send it to us. We would really appreciate it. We love it. And we're always sending each other articles. So constantly. So somebody else sends us articles too. Right. So just
0: join in. It'll be super fun. It's great. Excellent. In our last Waco episode, we asked at the end in our fluff and stuff question, if you were a cult leader, what would your cult be about? Which props to myself. I think this is a great question.
1: I loved it. It's awesome. We had some great responses. I'm so happy with them. I loved them all. Uh, Jody on Instagram said homesteading, but instead of a cult, it's just a community. I'm totally Which down I with like. that. I'm, I'm here for that. I'll jo-
0: sign you up. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, Couch Detective on Instagram said, I think I'm already in one with those obsessed with true crime. Same.
1: Same. Same total same. Love it. <laughs> Garth on Facebook said, Dungeons and Dragons. So much you could do with it. You could have different factions and it would be so sweet. I loved how
0: passionate he was about this. I oh,
1: could just you get You it. get bestie talking about D&D and it, there is passion there. It's great. I,
0: I can feel it. I, I think that would be a very interesting cult to observe. I love it.
1: <laughs> I think so too.
0: Yes. And Probably my favorite response goes to Cade oh, on mine Facebook. Too. He says, "Coffee, nectar of the gods, all hail the dirty bean water." <laughs> this is my
1: favorite response. Totally. I laughed so hard. Like, yes. <laughs> Be our leader Cade. I I'm here for it. <laughs> and the day he answered that, I needed a laugh so bad and I got it from that. So, yeah. Totally. Thank you, Cade. Yes.
0: Also, I've been worshipping the Coffee gods, too much today, and I am wired at 9 p.m. I just finished drinking coffee, so this is bad. (laughs) But it'll be fine. It's it's be fine. Yeah, fine. (laughs) Oh yeah, and I just want to say, after listening to our last Waco episode, I'm embarrassed by how many times I constantly said, "I don't understand. I don't understand." (laughs) I don't understand. Like that was my reaction to everything. I'm so embarrassed that I could not come up with anything else to say about the whole
1: situation. Then I don't understand. So we'll see, before. I didn't notice that that much. I noticed how many times I said rage,
0: <laughs> which I love. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah. It's fine. But I was like, wow, great commentary, Tara. <laughs> Keep it up. Fantastic. Yeah. But anyway, speaking of Waco, I think we're ready to jump into it.
1: I think we should. All right, friends, grab your glass and get cozy. Let's book club it up. Tink, tink. All right.
0: Well, welcome to part three of the Waco Tragedy series. Remind me next time I want to take on a huge case. It should be done in the winter when it's 40 below, rather than when it is beautiful outside and there is so much stuff that needs to be done in our short, short summers. It would make writing so much easier. But anyways, (laughs) (laughs) I hope everyone is enjoying these Waco episodes. This case is just so crazy and complicated. I just have to include all the important details or else I wouldn't be doing it justice. I know I've said that a thousand times before, but
1: just to reiterate, it's crazy. It's perfect. Yep. This was needed. Yes.
0: So... Let's dive in, but first, a warning. This episode will likely be the most difficult and heartbreaking one to get through. Most of the information from this episode was from David Thibodeau's book, Waco, A Survivor Story. So obviously, he lived through this attack. He experienced the devastation at full force, so some details might be hard to hear, but I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Mm Mm-hmm. So a brief recap from our last Waco episode, we discussed the surveillance and the investigation of David Koresh and the Branch Davidians leading up to the initial attack by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. It included questioning of acquaintances and past members, sending not-so-undercover ATF agents to gain information about Mount Carmel and its members, and a deliberately deceiving affidavit that included many inaccuracies about firearms, child abuse, and drug trafficking. The ATF acquired a warrant that required them to knock and request entry. However, on February 28, 1993, they brought in 80 vehicles, which included cattle trailers that held 80 armed agents, as well as three helicopters and TV crews to the front door of the compound. When David tried to reason with the officers, they shouted, police, search warrant, get down, and then began firing shortly thereafter. After almost two and a half hours of firefight, 16 ATF agents were wounded, four were dead, and the Branch Davidians had four wounded, one being David Koresh, five dead, and then one more member was killed the following day. This sparked a 51-day standoff where the Branch Davidians were tormented by the ATF and the FBI. This included cutting off their power, shining stadium lights in their windows, demolishing their property, and blaring bizarre and terrifying sounds on the loudspeakers at night. Although negotiators were able to make process, process, progress with the community and a total of 35 members had left the compound, it wasn't enough for the hostage rescue team. They were tired of waiting, so they formed a plan of attack to force civilians out of their home using excessive force and a chemical called CS gas. They flew to Washington to have Attorney General Janet Reno sign off on their plan, which she did. And that is where we had left off. So let's talk about this fatal decision a little bit further. Janet Reno was known for her concern for children, so this gave the Davidians hope that she could help them in their situation. After all, there had been over 40 children in the building when they were first attacked by the ATF with gunfire. Unfortunately, with the one-sided information and the fabricated allegations, the FBI made her believe that the children would be in more danger by remaining inside than they would if they were to go forward with the final attack. (laughs) you feel in the rage already? Already it's starting. It's building. The solution that the FBI brought forward was to pump tear gas into the building in order to force those inside to come out. They claimed no armored vehicles or gunfire would be used against the Davidians the FBI also lied to Reno about their water supply. They told her that the community had full tanks and they were rationing it well. But what they didn't tell her was that they shot holes into their water tanks and smashed their well pumps outside. When she asked them to check the water supply again, they told her that they had lots of water and it was being replenished. On April 17th, The day after the FBI and David Koresh agreed the standoff would end after David was finishing writing his interpretations of the Seven Seals, Janet Reno approved the use of CS gas on the community. She claimed she did this because of two major reasons. First, Kathy Shorter had apparently told law enforcement that David was abusing young girls during the standoff. David Thibodeau thinks this would have been practically impossible given Koresh's injuries. It is really difficult to know what was really happening behind closed doors at this time. The second reason was that law enforcement officers stated that their perimeter on the ground had been unstable and imposed a risk to them and surrounding neighbors. Again, there is no evidence of this. She was also told that bugs were planted inside the building, and they revealed that David was beating babies. The cameras inside the building not only gave the audio, but visual as well. I find it very interesting that these videos have never been released. If they had, it would confirm the child abuse allegations, and it would really help the FBI's case to prove that they were not making shit up. Just saying. You you would think. Later, when Reno said that she had gotten this information from the FBI, they denied ever telling Reno that there was any child abuse happening. (sighs) Mm -hmm. From the children that had already been released from the compound, They found that there was no evidence of abuse, and they were actually quite healthy, well-adjusted, educated, and they couldn't wait to be reunited with the rest of their community. The Attorney General had started off skeptical and wanting more information, but she was eventually bullied into making a terrible decision. While this fatal plan was being put into motion, the Branch Davidians were feeling hopeful that the standoff would be over soon, as David was working on his part of their deal. This hopefulness shifted to concern as the day before the attack, the FBI began clearing the area around Mount Carmel so armored vehicles could be brought in. Again, they messed with one of Koresh's beloved cars, a 68 Camaro, and this of course made him very angry. After that, they demanded that 50 Davidians must leave the property as proof of good faith, but obviously their hostile actions were not encouraging. Hmm, sounds very familiar. This yeah, it's a common theme. Let's wreck their shit and then demand something, and then they don't go for it.
1: Exactly. What is it that um, definition of insanity is doing something over and over again and expecting different results? Exactly.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Steve Schneider told negotiators that if they kept messing around with their stuff, it would distract David, and it would take him longer to finish his writing. Now, this is another situation where we don't really know what was going on inside the compound. There is a lot of conflicting information. That account was given by David Thibodeau. However, he said that the FBI's actions were not really distracting Koresh at this point as he was so focused on his writings and he had been up until 5 a.m. before the attack dictating his message. Gary Nosner, the FBI negotiator, believed that Koresh wasn't working on his writings at all and this was just another stalling tactic. He even stated in his book, Stalling for Time, that Steve gave confirmation to the FBI that David hadn't started writing at all, days after the agreement had been made. However, this would have been after Gary Nosner had left the investigation, so I don't believe that was first-hand knowledge. Just saying. Yep. Regardless, the plans for the attack were already made and were in motion. Initially, it was supposed to be slow and controlled, taking place over a 48-hour period, gradually forcing the inhibitors out of the building. However, it was clear within minutes of starting, there was no restraint and the agents let their frustrations take over. On April 19th, just before 6 a.m., the religious group were informed that they would be subjected to non-lethal tear gas and that they were to exit the compound immediately. Agents stated repeatedly, this is not an assault. Yeah, okay. It gives me chills saying that statement because it's so wrong. (laughs) Immediately, the members collected their gas masks that everyone had been issued at the beginning of the siege. They had acquired them from their gun show supplies, but they never imagined they would actually have to use them for themselves. Women began soaking rags in water to cover their children's faces as the gas masks were too big to fit them properly the child service workers that had previously investigated the child abuse allegations against David Koresh also told FBI that they did not agree with them using the tear gas in this situation as it would put the children at risk. The FBI told them to forget about it.
1: Rage. (sighs) A little bit of rage, yep. A lot of it, yeah. A lot of it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I got a lot of mm mm-hmm in me today, apparently. <laughs> I keep doing that. <laughs> Just feeling extra sassy.
0: I am extra sassy today. So before we proceed with the attack, let's briefly discuss the FBI's so-called non-lethal tear gas. Get ready, because I'm going to hit you with some facts and some science. We love science. Love science. We mentioned last week that the cocktail of choice was CS gas, which is a depressant of the nervous system even though it was banned from use in warfare in over 130 countries in January 1993, which was only three months prior to the final attack, they decided it would do the job in Waco, Texas. The use of it on civilians had been condemned by the U.S. Army and they even stated excessive exposure to CS gas may make people incapable of vacating an area. The company that makes it warns that when the gas is burned, it gives off fumes that could kill. The director of the Chemical and Biological Arms Control Institute in Virginia stated that the effects on children are much more intense as the smaller you are, the sooner you would feel the response. In a prior incident, chemical pneumonia was noted in children as well as uncontrollable vomiting, cyanosis, which is blue skin due to lack of oxygen, and burning of the skin.
1: Oh, I hate it so much. I hate where this is
0: going, and I wrote all these
1: notes. (laughs) I have like severe chills right now. Mm -hmm. Don't like it. No. An overdose
0: could be caused by only one grenade in a closed room. It is effective at 10 milligrams per cubic meter of air. Yet over six hours on April 19th, the FBI delivered 1,900 grams into Mount Carmel. Concentrations reach almost 16 times the effective amount, twice the density that is considered life-threatening. No greater concentrations have ever been used on U.S. civilians. Some have compared the use of CS gas in Mount Carmel to the gas chambers of Auschwitz. Oh my god, that hits me in the feels. Yep. After the building had been filled with tear gas... Agents became concerned when not a single person had exited the compound to reach safety. Air quotes. So, what did they do? They began plowing tanks through the walls of Mount Carmel, some into the common areas where people were trying to take shelter. David Thibodeau witnessed two people being run over by these tanks, shearing off parts of their bodies. And again, remember, this is not an assault. Oh my God. Feels hate it. The reasoning behind the tanks bursting through the walls was because the FBI made the assumption that since no one was exiting the building after being sprayed with tear gas, the women and children must have been held hostage. It's much more likely that they were seeking shelter from their attackers. Yeah. Because who would want to go towards the people that have shot at them, that are attacking them with? burning tear gas tear gas and demolishing their building. That doesn't seem with tanks. With tanks. With tanks. And they have been tormenting tormenting them for 51 days. I know. Totally.
1: They're the safe people here. Definitely. To
0: make matters worse, the chemicals that were being injected into the building can also become very flammable when confined in poorly ventilated areas. And like we mentioned before, when the gas is burnt, it can cause unconsciousness and death. Given the conditions, it is really not surprising that the building would catch fire and was quickly engulfed in flames. The CS gas burned like battery acid, and the intense heat melted people's clothes to their skin. Many of the women and children tried to escape the heat of the fire by seeking refuge in the underground bus, where the air was still breathable. That is, until FBI agents were ordered to pump CS gas directly into the area where the trap door to the bus was located. The FBI did this to prevent anyone from escaping or hiding underground, but I guess they didn't consider the possibility that the area had already been occupied. FBI Assistant Director Larry Potts, who was also partially responsible for the Ruby Ridge incident, explained their intentions were to push people into the center of the compound where they could be rounded up. Clearly, that doesn't work so well when the gas is sprayed into a confined area, rendering people unconscious and likely causing them to suffocate. Sorry if that sounds harsh, but that is the reality of this situation. That is exactly what they did. That is what they did. It's it's very difficult to talk about picturing that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's the worst. One of the most heavily debated topics in the Waco case is who was responsible for the fires. The FBI is adamant that the Davidians lit the fires on purpose, as it had been ignited in multiple places at the same time. They also claimed that audio from their planted bugs revealed some members discussing lighting fires. Afterwards, they said survivors had lighter fluid on their clothing when they exited the building. From the Davidian side, they say the fires were started exactly where and when the tanks entered the buildings. The lighter fluid was likely from their kerosene lanterns, as some of them had been broken during the siege as CEVs came crashing through the walls. Regardless of who is responsible for the fires, it is really not surprising that this situation ended in flames, one way or another. Allow me to give a brief lesson on how fire works. (laughs) I'm excited about this. I'm a bit of a pyromaniac. (laughs) There are three essential components required to start a fire. Heat, fuel, and oxygen. This is called the fire triangle or the combustion triangle. All of these elements are needed or a fire will not start. Heat. You need a heat source for the initial ignition of the fire. Again, the two scenarios are that there was deliberate igniting done by the Davidians, or that it was started by the kerosene and propane lanterns that were being used for light and heat sources since they had their electricity cut off. Many of these lanterns were knocked over and crushed from tanks, and this also could have contributed to the fuel aspect. Fuel is any combustible material. The walls of Mount Carmel were made from bare wood, Plus, they had bales of hay stacked against the walls to protect them from gunfire. To top it off, methylene chloride dust from the CS gas coated the walls, floors, and ceilings. Witnesses also saw tanks with bulldozing blades pushing debris into the fire. Oxygen supports the chemical process that occurs during fire. When it burns, it reacts with oxygen from the surrounding air, releasing heat and generating combustion products. April 19th was a dry and windy day. The wind was gusting at 60 miles per hour. Essentially, it was like when you're trying to start a campfire and you blow into it in order to increase the available oxygen and help remove combustion products. So all together, it makes the perfect conditions for a fire. And yet they seem to be really surprised that the building lit on fire. Completely surprised and totally unprepared. Like, did they have Smokey the Bear? Come on. <laughs> this right? Is, this is very simple camping knowledge. <laughs> like, right? Come on. <laughs> Obviously, they've never spent any time in the bush. Nope, apparently not. Like we said, for some reason, they had no resources available to control a fire if one were to break out. The day after the tragedy, Bob Ricks, FBI spokesperson, said that they never expected a fire to ignite. However, a nurse in the Waco burn unit says they were contacted at 5 a.m. to find out how many casualties the unit could handle. This was one hour before the attack on the Branch Davidians took place. Agents were also equipped with fire retardant suits used in situations where a high risk of fire were expected. They had also requested U.S. medical evacuation helicopters to transport casualties two weeks prior to the attack. Even more frightening, apparently, they had contacted local morgues to arrange a special order for 80 body bags, which at that point would have been enough for each person remaining inside of Mount Carmel. If that's true, dear Lord, baby Jesus, what the fuck? Right? That's messed up. It's so screwed up. Mm -hmm. However, what they did not arrange was for fire trucks to be present on the scene. Ten minutes after the first sign of smoke is when the FBI finally called 911. When trucks were arriving at the scene, they were stopped for inspection, which added another 16 minutes to the delay. Apparently, this was because they were concerned for the firefighters' safety.
1: But, you know, not the safety of the The 80 people that were still inside the compound. Including all the tiny humans. Mm -hmm.
0: God, I got to stop doing that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) I got my like snap and like head nod at the same time going too. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) So much sass. I have a lot of feelings. Okay. The fire burned hot and fast only lasting about 25 minutes. Yet it took the fire crews 31 minutes from when they were first called to arrive at the scene. At that point, there was practically nothing left of Mount Carmel and the people that were trapped inside. After the fire, Representative James Traficant commented on the FBI plan. When you have 100 TV crews, but not one fire truck, that is not a well-thought-out plan. That's box office. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: Sure is. Wonder where their priorities were at. I don't have many questions, actually, as to where their priorities were at. Nah. I'm fairly certain.
0: Pretty sure we got a good understanding of it. Only nine people would emerge, throwing themselves out of windows or holes in the walls, choosing the possibility of being shot down by law enforcement over going up in flames. The survivors included Renos Avram, Jamie Castillo, Graham Craddock, Clive Doyle, Misty Ferguson, Derek Lovelock, Ruth Ellen Ottoman-Riddle, and Marjorie Thompson. It is pretty terrible when naming the survivors is easier than naming all of the victims. Mm -hmm. Oh, I forgot to mention in there, obviously, David Thibodeau. (laughs) I was going to say, you forgot (laughs) one. (laughs) I forgot one. Yep, yep, yep. David Thibodeau was in there as well. Of course, he wrote a book about it. When the survivors left Mount Carmel and approached the FBI... They were forced to lay down and their hands were tied behind their backs. They were shouted at, where are the women and children? They told officers that they would likely seek refuge in the underground bus. Another officer responded, we tear gassed that bus. Moments later, there was an explosion, surely incinerating all that remained inside. 75 members of the Branch Davidians died that day, including 25 children. As the fires had reached cremation temperatures, most of their bodies were unrecognizable as humans. Many likely died due to asphyxiation, crush injuries, or immolation, which I learned is a new word for being burned to death. Ugh! Did not know
1: that. I hate but. that. Mm-hmm. Could have gone my whole life without learning that one. You're welcome. Thanks,
0: dude. <laughs> mm-hmm. But autopsy reports determined that some of the children had been killed likely by their parents, to spare them from the excruciating death by burning. Including some children, it was found that approximately 20 members had died of gunshot wounds, along with Koresh and Schneider. Their bodies were found together. Koresh had a bullet wound to the brain. Schneider had a bullet wound to the upper palate inside his mouth. I think it's pretty apparent what happened there. Their fiery end was eerily biblical the FBI were quick to make accusations that it was all a part of a planned mass suicide. One of the survivors, Livingston Fagan, was in his prison cell when he stated that there was never any plan for suicide, but certain individuals had expressed that they would be willing to die for what they believed in rather than surrender. They believed that in the final battle, people would die by sword and flame, by captivity and by spoil, but the sword and the flame would be the weapons of their attackers, not themselves. After all, they believed it was a sin to commit suicide. Another survivor, Clive Doyle, made the comment, if they thought we were a bunch of crazies, why did they drive us to the limit? That's a good point. That is a great question. After all of this, what did the FBI find for weapons on the property after the fire? Well, not surprisingly, there isn't really a clear answer partially due to the extreme destruction of the building and whatever was held inside, as well as some allegedly shady activity from the ATF and the FBI. Again, Texas Rangers were prevented from analyzing the crime scene as ATF were obviously altering outside evidence. This included the building missing half of its front doors, conveniently the same half that had bullet holes from the initial attack in February which would have indicated shots being fired towards the Davidians. Trash was being loaded into dumpsters before the scene had been processed for evidence. The FBI apparently confiscated videotapes from the coroner's office, but then later lost them. More air quotes there. So many air quotes. In the end, they said that they had found 300 guns in and around Mount Carmel as well as dummy grenades, remnants of 500,000 rounds of ammo, silencers, and illegally converted automatic rifles. However, they did not uncover any 50 caliber rifles, even though that is what they claimed the Davidians had been using to shoot at them during the siege. There has never been an independent investigation of the weapons that had been found at the scene. So were those 300 guns worth the lives of 86 people? Hmm... Yeah. Four of the nine survivors had to be treated in hospital for their burns. The physical injuries were also accompanied by the emotional trauma they all experienced. Witnessing their family, friends, and community go up in flames is something you can never recover from. After leaving Mount Carmel, these survivors were not free to leave and try to rebuild their crumpled lives. Instead, 12 of them were imprisoned and others like David Thibodeau were held as material witnesses. This is information that I found on Wikipedia. Quote, the grand jury charged, among other things, that the branch Davidians had conspired to and aided and embedded in murder of federal officers and had unlawfully possessed and used various firearms. The government dismissed the charges against one of the 12 branch Davidians pursuant to a plea bargain. After a jury trial lasting nearly two months, the jury acquitted four of the Branch Davidians on all charges. Additionally, the jury acquitted all of the Branch Davidians on the murder-related charges, but convicted five of them on lesser charges, including aiding and abetting the voluntary manslaughter of federal agents. Eight Branch Davidians were convicted on the firearms charges, End quote. The convicted members who received sentences up to 40 years were Kevin Whitecliffe, Jamie Castillo, Paul Fada, Renos Avram, Graham Craddock, Brad Branch, Livingston Fagan, Ruth Riddle, and Katherine Schroeder. Surprisingly, Attorney General Janet Reno gained a lot of popularity after this incident and was somehow praised for her fatal decision-making. In a July 1995 interview, she stated that with over two years of a review, nothing has given me any indication that the FBI misled my decision. I really wanted to sympathize with her and that she was manipulated into agreeing to an attack plan with false and one-sided information. But to me, that statement shows that she does not deserve any sympathy.
1: No, it just shows that they're all just trying to cover their ass. Exactly.
0: Several of the surviving Branch Davidians, as well as more than 100 family members of those that had died or were injured, brought civil suits against the United States government numerous federal officials, and others. The bulk of these claims were dismissed because they were insufficient as a matter of law or because plaintiffs could advance no material evidence to support them. Again, this is from Wikipedia, quote, the court, after a month-long trial, rejected the Branch Davidians case. The court found that on February 28, 1993, the Branch Davidians initiated a gun battle where they fired at federal officers who were attempting to serve lawful warrants. ATF agents returned the gunfire to the building, the court ruled, to protect themselves and other agents from death or serious bodily harm. The court found that the government's planning of the siege, i.e. the decisions to use tear gas against the Branch Davidians, to insert the tear gas by means of military vehicles, and to admit specific planning for the possibility that a fire would erupt was a discretionary function for which the government could not be sued. The court also found that the use of tear gas was not negligent. Further, even if the United States government were negligent by causing damage to the building before the fires broke out, thus either blocking escape routes or enabling the fires to spread faster, that negligence did not legally cause the plaintiffs' injuries because the Branch Davidians started the fires. End quote. Sorry, that was a lot of words and a lot of information, but basically, to sum it up, the government refuses to take responsibility for any of the injustices and the loss of life that they caused and directed all the blame on the community that they initiated their assault on. Yeah. So what happened to the remaining Branch Davidian followers, and what is the group like today? Although they obviously lost a large amount of followers in the raid, there were some Branch Davidians elsewhere in the world slowly a few members returned to the site of Mount Carmel. Clive Doyle, one of the few male survivors not to be in prison, took the role of lay preacher for the group. In 2003, Doyle told a reporter for the Texas Monthly Magazine that only a dozen or so Davidians were left in Texas and maybe 100 around the world. In addition to those Davidians, a second group settled onto Mount Carmel's site. However, they called themselves Branch, the Lord Our Righteousness. This group is led by Charles Pace, who had been a follower of Lois Roden's, but had left after Kresh came into power as he believes Kresh corrupted the group's message. The branch is now a legally recognized church and has approximately 1,200 members. Doyle eventually left the site in 2006 over conflicts with Pace and his followers, but he remained in the Waco area and continued to hold Bible studies with another survivor, Sheila Martin. As Doyle put it then, we, as survivors of 1993, are looking for David and all of those that died, either in the shootout or in the fire. We believe that God will resurrect this special group. And that is where I will end my coverage of the Waco tragedy. What a journey.
1: That was a ride. (laughs) I felt really fast. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Probably because my words somewhat worked today. And we didn't have 10,000
1: interruptions. Anyways. It's true. There's (laughs) no little boys with pillow emergencies today. Yes.
0: My references were history.com, Wikipedia, and again, the books written by David Thibodeau and Gary Nosner.
1: So, heavy stuff. Yeah, I have... It's such a roller coaster. I've had so many like back and forth feelings like, ah, the Branch Davidians could have just walked out and ended it. And Mm -hmm. then I'm like, oh man, the FBI and the ATF suck. And these are the people that we're trusting our government with. Like our government trusts them, but then is our government trustworthy? And like, there's just this whole like roller coaster. Oh,
0: it's so hard. And I know I really presented a lot of the information one-sided, really hard on the FBI's ass, but these are people that we should be able to trust. And I don't, it really makes you question how much you can trust them. And I'm not usually a person to not believe in, you know, the government or policing or anything like that. I'm usually on their side, Mm -hmm. but this case makes me question everything.
1: Absolutely. And I felt like the whole time we were covering this, and then I would compare this to what was happening in our world right now, and I just couldn't help but think of how relevant it is. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole right now because that's, that's a whole other thing, but have they really changed that much? Like, can we be sure that they have, or, or right. is it just still, we're going to do this because we can?
0: And they were on such a world stage. They were being filmed constantly throughout this. And the footage was being watched around the world. But yet they're still able to cover shit up and be like,
1: nope, we weren't responsible. And that's one of the most frustrating things is that we're never going to know the truth. We're never going to know because the opinions of David Thibodeau in his book and Gary Donister in his are so completely different. And there's things that we learned in Gary's book that I was like, people came out of Mount Carmel with accelerant on their clothing. So then why did they have accelerant on their clothing? Right. Was it from the kerosene lanterns or did they actually start that fire? Yes. We're never going to know. Exactly. Also something that I didn't mention was, well,
0: on both sides, they both claimed that during this final siege, both sides were shooting at each other. Um, While the Davidians were inside taking cover before things really got bad, they heard on the news that the FBI was saying they were being fired at by the Davidians. And from what David Thibodeau could tell, he didn't hear any gunfire whatsoever. And then on the Davidian side, they said that they heard accounts later from neighbors witnessing people trying to leave the buildings and they were fired at by FBI agents. So what really happened?
1: I just need to know. We're never going to know because it's now buried in the archives below like the FBI buildings.
0: Exactly. And there's eyewitnesses, but there's eyewitnesses on every side and everybody's saying something different. So it's like, I know it's so overwhelmingly frustrating. (laughs) Absolutely. And that's why this is so hard to put together. It's like, Yeah, this is one part of the story, but you have to take into consideration five different stories, like five different perspectives. It's impossible to- I know. No. And yeah, there's just such strong opinions online from what I've seen. On both
1: sides. On both
0: sides. If you side with the FBI, you're a sheep. You're a follower. You're an idiot. Mm -hmm. If you side with the Branch Davidians, you're a tinfoil hat, conspiracy theorist, nut job. Literally, it's like a constant battle still to this day online of people being like, you're
1: dumb. No, you're dumb. It's like, well,
0: I sit right in the middle. Honest to God, I sit
1: right in the middle. I'm yeah. yeah. got my tinfoil hat on while being a sheep. Right. (laughs) That's another
0: great image that I I was going to (laughs) say.
1: Would (laughs) you like me to draw that one for you too? I would
0: love that. Our farm
1: (laughs) is going to be so fun. Right. Tinfoil hat wearing sheep. (laughs) Class are apocalyptic
0: delip- cows. Wow. Right? Words. Oh, anyways. <laughs> oh, and then I wanted to bring up the video footage that I posted on our Instagram and our Facebook. Cause yes. that that really pissed me off. Honestly, I was just watching it just to get, I don't know, a little bit more perspective to really see because there's cameras there. So yeah, it's weird to mm-hmm. hear somebody tell the story, but there's cameras there so you can see the story. But the mm-hmm. narrator Oh my lord. Like, I know. It's just a field of agents shooting at the compound and they're like, oh, and then David Krush, this psycho, lost his, you know, whatever, lost control and started shooting back at them, and he was the reason. And it's like, well, um, they were what? legit under attack. Really? Like you just like, you're showing footage of it right in front of our eyes and them at the shooting. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Uh, Anyways, sorry. Didn't explain it well, but go check it out on our social medias if you haven't seen it yet. Really, really got me fired up.
1: (laughs) Yes. I know. I saw it. I was like, it's
0: just not okay. Rage. Rage. Every time I needed like inspiration to like continue writing, I would just watch one of those videos and then
1: I'd get so
0: mad. I'd be like,
1: (laughs) gotta write this. (laughs) Gotta get through it. Yes. Yeah. Well, and like, we decided to do this case because of the series on Netflix, right? Yes. And I I wanted to mention, because I don't know that I did, but the final episode shows the attack with CS gas and whatnot. And I literally, because I'm a grandma, um, was cross-stitching at the time. And I was holding my cross-stitch up over my face. So just my eyes were poking out from behind it. And I was bawling. There's just like tears running down my face. And my husband looked at me and he's like, whoa, you okay? And I was just like, visually how they portrayed that on that show was so well done. Oh my God. I thought they did such a good job because man, the feels that came from that. Feels. I don't think I've ever watched, like I can't even
0: think of another show that has made me feel that much to that extent. Like Thinking
1: about I it, like, I get teary because it's so awful. It's... I know. I was a little worried when you, were, when you were reading that part about the tear gas and the underground bus. I was like, man, if I cry on the podcast, I'm not going to be able to stop. <laughs> yeah. Same. And I was getting yeah. choked up too. It's,
0: it's so hard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the series is so well done. Clearly, it is very one-sided, but it gives a very important perspective. Because it I did, yeah. The the side that everybody just agreed upon and were like, oh, I guess that's how it is, is the side that this was a crazy cult, that this was a big mass suicide because, you know, it was all part of the book of Revelation. And I just. And I mean, <sighs> historically speaking, cults are crazy. And, I you know, you've. Totally. I understand that. But it's just so interesting to hear the perspective from somebody like me, that's not mm-hmm. religious, how mm-hmm. they ended up being in this cult and how it all went down from a different perspective that we, I don't think I've ever really followed a perspective that closely in a cult, you know, yeah. from the side of a follower. It's always exactly. the outside
1: looking in. So it's yep. fascinating. It's very, yeah, it was very, it was very interesting just to be able to read about both sides' opinions and the differences and but to be able to form our own opinions and Mm -hmm. I think we both know where we stand. So, yeah,
0: I guess I'm a tinfoil hat kind of person, but you know,
1: I'm in the middle hat wearing sheep. (laughs) Yep. Exactly.
0: That's, Mm -hmm. that's me. Yeah. So man, so fun, but so sad. Oh my God. Yes. I'm just like, I can't even (sighs) explain it. Like I'm like listening to my audio book making notes and I'm just like heavily breathing because I'm like just trying to keep my composure sitting beside my husband and he's probably like what is this psycho doing because your husband does not care he does not care I can't talk to him about these things so I can't even explain what it looks like like you know I look like I'm a crazy person I can't really explain it so you just have to accept it
1: (laughs) yeah it's fine I mean, at least Des watched the show with me. So I could be like, oh my God, this is this part. And he's like, E not yeah. good, right? Yeah. So he kind of knew what was going on, but yeah. Mm-hmm. But I could get him
0: to watch, you know, it is a bunch of Texans with a bunch of guns and he'd be it's like- It's true. Okay, sure. That sounds yeah, cool. Send sign me up. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe I'll get him one day. We'll see. Maybe
1: you should take a Waco break. You know, you're probably right. <laughs> oh <laughs> man. I think you've been wake-o'd out.
0: <laughs> I'm pretty wake out. Yes. I've spent a lot of time with this case and not really looking into a lot of other things. Like I'll have yeah. a little bit of palate cleansers here and there with some other podcasts, but I haven't. Like I've just avoided jumping into other cases right yeah. now because I'm just like, nope. Must you're in it?
1: all in it time. to win it.
0: In <laughs> it to win it. Hopefully, I did the key justice because I think you did amazingly. Damn, thank you. Mm-hmm. I bet you're probably ready for some fluffing stuff.
1: Oh my god, I need some fluffing stuff. <laughs> I need it. <laughs> I was gonna go with a really
0: happy, like funny kind of thing to be like, you know, distraction from the terrible tragedy that we just talked about. But then I was thinking, man, I like I would just love to visit Waco so much. Yes. Like, oh, it would just be very incredible and moving. And I just like, it is now on my bucket list to visit Waco. Mm-hmm. So my question today is what dark tourism destination would you like to
1: visit? Ooh, can I only pick one? Nah,
0: give them to me. <laughs> Tell okay. me all of them.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, number one, Salem, Massachusetts. Ooh, I, that didn't even come up on my radar. That's great. hundred percent. I want to go to Salem. Cool. It's been on my list forever. Um, I want to go to Auschwitz because mm-hmm. I just really feel like, and the stories I've heard from people that have been there, just like those feelings and just the overwhelming sadness, which is a weird thing that, to seek out, but that it just lives in the air there. And I think and it's important
0: to be able to recognize the amount of sadness and amount of tragedy that it is a part of our history. It can't be erased.
1: It needs to be acknowledged. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, the other place, this is totally going to shock you. I think, um, is Gettysburg. Oh yeah. It's apparently like super haunted and I just, I want to go. Sounds great.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I like hate haunted ghost things,
1: but at the same time, I love it and it's a terrible Terrible relationship. And it's just like there's so much history there. It's the same reason with Auschwitz and Salem that I just there's so much history and you can learn so much just being in those places and like but yeah, Salem's my number one. Nice. Yeah. I love that. One day.
0: One day. Telling you, man, we're gonna go on a gonna go on tour. (laughs)
1: Right? (laughs) Road trip. Everywhere. I just picture us in a murder in Merlot, like motorhome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm just imagining the decals
0: that we would have on the side. <laughs> and we just we have, we have like by the cops. <laughs> I was just going to say just blood splatter. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> no explanation. That's Empty what I want.
1: And blood splatter.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's not suspicious at all. No, we won't get pulled over. Nope. no, <laughs> no. Nope. I love it.
1: <laughs> so what about you? Besides Waco. Besides
0: Waco. I mean, there's so many. Like, pretty much oh. anywhere <laughs> there has been a crazy murder or serial killer mm-hmm. whatever. I would love to experience it. But I think mm-hmm. number one on my list would have to be Chernobyl.
1: Oh, oh my God. I am terrified of Chernobyl. That is oh. the one place I will not go with you.
0: Because really? I just assumed it would be on your list because it's just...
1: It's just, I don't know. It's crazy. It It is so cool. Like just the, the realness of that explosion and the crazy destruction and the radiation poisoning and all of that stuff scares the crap out of me.
0: Yeah. It's very real. And I just think it's so fascinating that like the things that are there, it's like time
1: has just stopped. stopped. I know. Stopped everybody in their tracks. It was what? 1986?
0: Yeah. Some, somewhere around there.
1: So that's the year I was born. Right. Damn. So, yeah. Well, there you go. Everybody knows how old I am. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> Did you watch the HBO special?
0: Uh, I have not. Show. I have oh, not watched it yet, and I'm dying to. But then yes. I get wrapped up in cases like Waco, and then it like back burner, back burner, back burner.
1: But like it was one day. so good. But it was another one that I could only watch one episode at a time, and I cried my way through it. Yeah. It was, it was, fair enough. It's, too real, yeah. I'm definitely yeah. gonna watch it. I don't know, hopefully soon. I feel like that would be fun for me. <laughs> I remember coming to work after I was yeah. watching it. And I was like, Dude, have you watched it? And you're like, Not yet. And I'm like, I know it's not okay. Man. And it's not absolutely. okay at that time. I wrote
0: it down on my phone so I would remember to watch it. And I think about it all the time. Literally, you definitely
1: should because it was very, very well done. Yeah, I've heard it's one of the greats. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So that's, that's probably my number one, but pretty yeah, much any, anything to do with dark tourism. I'm, I'm in. Right. Have you heard of the, I'm pretty sure I've told you about the museum. That's like, it's not in Calgary, but it's like in a small town close to Calgary. And it's yes. Like
1: the fear of, no, it's, it's the, what the hell is that place called? It sounds uh, terrifying. It's like, but yes, is- you have told me about it and I totally want to want to go as well. Okay. This place is called the Museum of
0: Fear and Wonder. Mm-hmm. And it sounds terrifying. And I don't want to yeah. go there, but I want to go there so bad. It's basically just a museum of things that make you feel uncomfortable.
1: Well, that's <laughs> a perfect place for you and me. I know.
0: <laughs> I know. And you have to like make reservations like a year in advance. They only have a certain amount of people that go through at a time and they really want you to experience,
1: yeah. So, I mean, you and I both went into the very haunted hotel in our town and had our own very intense. similar but different intense experiences there. And I'm good; I never need to go down there again. Looking but back, maybe I'm we like, should do this one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look back. I'm like, how was I okay
0: with that? I was like, oh yeah, go down that spooky dark hallway. Sure. Yeah, like, the one with all the doors. Yeah, that's yeah. nice. They tell you sure. to videotape in case you catch something on camera. Yeah, I'll do that. What, Which we did. What is wrong with me? <laughs> <laughs> I would never do that if it wasn't like some group setting that it's like, okay, guys, we're doing this, right? I
1: would not do that by myself. No. God, Imagine no. being the people that like work in that hotel or work in this museum. Oh my god just have to be a different sort of person. I don't know. Yeah. The night that I went into the the basement of that hotel, there was a waitress working and she had to like bring hors d'oeuvres down and she literally like brought the food downstairs and she booked it right back upstairs. She's like, I don't stay down there. I was like, but so so why am I sitting down here? Right. (laughs) Just eating some deep fried pickles
0: and just chilling. Right. (laughs) But the yeah, owner of the hotel is just like, yeah, I'm totally fine with it. We're at peace. Like they're nice. It's all good. And it's just like, oh my God.
1: Okay. Yeah. No. Nothing a ghost happened. stood on my foot.
0: Ooh. I'm pretty sure a ghost walked right through me. Like I felt it in my soul.
1: Oh, I know. But there was like, I had one point where I was just like standing there and my one foot was cold, like ice cold. And I was like, I need to move. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm yeah, not okay.
0: This reminds me that we have to have a Michelle Spooky
1: episode one day. We totally have to have a Michelle Spooky episode because yeah. I yeah. had my time to shine. Now you, Yes, it. <laughs> it's true. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. Dark to it. I love it. Yeah, That was a fun little sidebar. I liked it.
0: <laughs> I liked it too. I could talk about that all day, I think.
1: Yes. We like the dark and twisty. We know this. So yes. cool. this is fact. So make sure to answer our question as well. Also, obviously, let us know what you thought about the episode. You can email us at murdermurlow at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at podcast, Facebook at and podcast, and Twitter at murderandmerlo one You can listen to us on iTunes,
0: Google Play, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else you can find podcasts. We would love if you
1: subscribed, and if you don't, you're dead to me. Our book club is coming up next, where we will be talking about Waco, A Survivor Story by David Thibodeau, and Stalling for Time by Gary Nosner.
0: Yes. So we're not like quite out of the woods yet for Waco, but this is like a legit book club where we will be discussing the books themselves and the authors
1: rather than describing the story like we have done so in previous book club episodes. We'll have some book club questions posted on our social media. So if you read along, please send in some responses so we can share your answers as well. And I'm, I'm talking to you mom because I know you read them. Yeah. (laughs) Calling you out.
0: (laughs) And coming up after our Waco series is, of course, Labyrinth by Randall
1: Sullivan. Which, of course, is the murders of Tupac Shakur and the Notorious B.I.G. And, oh my god, I'm having so much fun reading this book.
0: The dance parties have started. It is
1: official. (laughs) Yeah. You come to my house, it's going to get a little hood. Like a little bit,
0: a <laughs> little bit, and that's okay. Yep. I haven't even started reading it yet, but I'm joining in on Michelle's dance parties, and it's great. Oh, it's fun. <laughs> I mean, if you get sent a video <laughs> of somebody dancing to Biggie, 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 can't you see? Like, you got to join in. You just can't. You have to. You have it's like, to. It is yeah. a requirement. It's like you're hypnotized or something. <gasps> I see what you did there, right? (laughs) I love it. I love it. It's going to be so much fun to dive into that, especially because you don't know much. I don't really, honestly, know anything about it.
1: (laughs) I'm ashamed to say, which is very fun. I recently had to have a trip to the ER, and uh, while I was there, I wound up. I'm sitting there reading my book, and a police officer just is like comes into the waiting room. He's trying to watch the hockey game, and he's like, "What are you reading?" I was like, Oh, and I was like, it's this book. And I was like, it's about Tupac and Biggie. And he's like, Oh, I watched a documentary about that. And him and I just like, the emerge just had like this conversation about East Coast versus West Coast. And it was just like, so much fun. It made my ER trip a little bit better than it was. So that's fantastic.
0: Just, we yeah, got to spread, awesome. <laughs> spread the murder love everywhere we go, apparently. <laughs> right? Right? It just comes up yeah. in conversation.
1: Right? It's excellent.
0: always a highlight of my day when I get to talk about murder with a random person.
1: it's like, Right? This is my jam. And this is totally not weird at all. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. excellence All right, guys, remember to drink wine because it's not good to keep things bottled up. Bye. Bye.